I believe that we can create meat-like experiences for customers that will be the same uh, as the meaty experiences that they're having today, just without animals and with a far lighter footprint on the planet. And I think there's a lot of meat companies out there today who recognize that that's going to be a big part of the future and they want to profit in that type of a world rather than becoming the Kodak. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. This is Pat McCauley. My guest this week is the trailblazing Paul Shapiro. Paul is the CEO of The Better Meat Co. He's the author of the national best-selling book, Clean Meat. He is also a four-time uh, TEDx speaker. Uh, for those that don't know, The Better Meat Co., unlike uh, Impossible or Beyond or kind of the consumer-facing plant-based meat companies, the Better Meat Co. sells their product, their plant-based meat product, to primarily big meat companies for blending. Uh, so companies like Purdue and others will actually blend plant-based meat um, into their animal-based meat for their chicken nuggets or whatever other products they make. Um, and we talk all about in this episode why big meat companies are starting to do that um, and the Better Meat Company's kind of approach to um, you know, making a positive impact on the planet through uh, kind of the B2B angle. Um, we also talk about how Paul's experience uh, writing the book Clean Meat is what led him to start uh, a company in the space, um, why history shows us that it's technology, it's not compassion, unfortunately, uh, that replaces the use of animals. Uh, we talk about why making meat without the animals makes sense, uh, the massive environmental benefits of making meat from plants, uh, why big meat companies are becoming less uh, of meat companies and becoming more just protein companies in general, um, and why changing how we make meat is really the only path forward. Super interesting episode with a very knowledgeable uh, and inspiring guy here. Um, I encourage you to follow him as always, all links to everything Paul's doing in the show notes. Um, and I will see you guys next week without further ado, the trailblazing Paul Shapiro. All right, I got the Paul Shapiro on the line of the Better Meat Co. Welcome, man. I have followed you um, a number of years, you know, since uh, since I heard of you and, and what you've been doing. And um, yeah, super excited to get to know you a little bit, as I was just saying, but also learn about what you're doing with the company. I am psyched to be talking with you, Pat. I, I enjoy your show. And I am all about eating green and I want people to make green by going green. So I, you know, I think that we, <laughs> we've got, I think, you know, it, animals and the planet are not going to be good off if, uh, if it does not become profitable to actually help them. You know, the problem is it's profitable to harm animals in the planet right now. So we need to make it profitable to actually help them. And uh, I'm, I'm eager to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, before we get right into that, could you give us the cliff notes on kind of how, your life has gone in this direction and maybe what, if there was any shift in your life that led you this, this way? Yeah, of course, man. I, I am not an Ironman athlete like you. I am really uh, impressed that you're going to be doing your first Ironman and I'm psyched that it's going to be in Sacramento. So I will be there cheering you on. 
So uh, you better make sure that uh, you let me know the exact date when you're doing the Sacramento Ironman. Uh, however, um, you know, you know, like you, I had a big, um, I had a big inspiration from going plant-based. Um, I, the reason I became vegan in 1993 was really just to do with animals. I loved animals. I didn't want to harm them. I found out what happened to them on factory farms and in slaughter plants. And, you know, for me, that was enough. I just thought even now, you know, I was a young teenager and I just thought, I don't want to be a part of this. And so I became vegan. Now at that time, Pat, like, honestly, people didn't know what the word meant. I mean, you know, there was no, uh, you know, websites, there was no YouTube, like, you know, if anything, if you told them that you were vegan, they probably thought you were from Vegas. Like that's what they thought you were saying. Um, <laughs> in fact, I, in fact, I didn't know how to pronounce it myself. I was reading about it. And I thought it was vegan. Now it wasn't until I met some of these vegans that I actually learned that they were actually vegans. Um, but what really pushed me over the edge is I became a vegetarian at first. And then I started reading about what I thought was veganism. And then, um, I, I, you know, I thought, well, maybe that's admirable, but I kind of viewed it uh, like holding your breath, you know, you can hold your breath for some time, but if you do it too long, you're going to die. And I thought, you know, maybe you can go without any animal products at all for some amount of time, but you're going to die if you do it too long. Uh, so I didn't do it, but then a few weeks after I made the decision to become vegetarian, I met some people who I learned were not vegans, but were vegans. And uh, they looked good to me. They didn't look like unhealthy. They looked reasonable. And uh, then they showed me this interview of Carl Lewis. And now for those of you who are too young, you may not know who Carl Lewis is, but back then, you know, he was like the Usain Bolt, right? He was like the fastest person on the planet. He was an American Olympian gold medalist. I worshiped him. I had a big poster of him. Like I really loved Carl Lewis. And in the interview, Lewis talked about how his best years in the Olympics were the years that he was vegan. And I was blown away. Like now I was seeing evidence that it actually wasn't just that you could survive on a vegan diet, but that you could actually thrive and be like Carl Lewis. And that was enough for me. I was like, hey, if Carl Lewis is vegan, I'm vegan. And uh, that really pushed me over the edge. And interestingly enough, I, I noticed actually, I bought some silk soy milk recently. And, you know, and this is the year 2021. And Carl Lewis is on the package. I mean, he's like on the front of the carton of, of soy milk. And I was like, who knows who Carl Lewis is today at all? Um, but apparently some people do because Silk is putting them on the package. So good for him all these decades later, still being popular enough to show up on soy milk. Uh, but anyway, uh, so that's the story of how I, I became vegan. And so that was nearly 30 years ago. And I, I, I didn't do it for health, but I had real health benefits. I lost weight. Um, I had other real serious benefits. I joined the track team. I, like big things happened in my life for you know a teenager uh, at that point. And I really thought um, that my wife would be devoted to trying to help animals because I loved them so much and I felt so terrible about what was happening to them. And so I spent a long time uh, working in the nonprofit space, trying to pass laws to help protect farm animals and conducting undercover investigations into what happens to them. And I, I really came to the realization, Pat, that you know probably awareness about the mistreatment of animals and the problems that were creating for the planet was not sufficient that, you know, just telling people what happens is really not going to make it happen. And so, you know, if you look at why other categories of animal exploitation ended, it generally was not because of humane sentiment. So for example, you know, we used to light all of our homes with whale oil and we didn't stop because we cared about whales. We stopped because somebody invented kerosene and we had a better way to light our homes. We didn't stop exploiting horses for labor. They were horribly abused um, in the 19th century and, and for centuries prior to that too. 
they're horribly abused, uh, working under the threat of violence, you know, all these, you know, the reason why stagecoach operators all carry whips. And we didn't stop because people cared about horses. We stopped because cars were invented. We didn't stop live plucking geese for their feathers so that we could have quills to write with because we cared about geese. We stopped because fountain pens were invented. And the list goes on and on and on of these types of examples. In fact, it's very difficult to contemplate any category of animal exploitation that ended because of humane sentiment. And so I ended up writing a book on this topic. It's called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World. And uh, the book explores the investors, the entrepreneurs, the scientists who are all working to grow animal meat without animals. And after writing that book, I decided that rather than continuing to chronicle the work of the people who I thought would save the world, I would become one of them myself. So that's the basic nutshell of a few decades of history right there. Yeah. And, and when you first wrote that book, was clean meat like, how, how long ago did you first start the process of writing the book? And was clean meat like at all on the horizon? It was on the horizon for sure. So I, I started writing it in 2016 and the book came out in 2018. But, um, you know, the very first time that anybody actually grew real meat from animal cells without having to, um, you know, raise the whole animal was actually about 20, a little bit more than 20 years ago. NASA funded some research where scientists essentially grew goldfish muscle cells outside of the goldfish's body and they managed to increase the, the size of it. So, you know, the, the premise for NASA was, of course, not just self-sustainability problems here on Earth. Rather, they're thinking, you know, if astronauts are going to go on like long distance cosmic tourism, you know, they're not carrying Noah's Ark in tow, you know, like you're not bringing animals into space with you. You're going to have to, if you want meat, you're going to have to grow it. So that was their goal. And then you fast forward to 2013 and the very first cultured burger was served up in London and at that point, I started thinking, you know, this would be amazing if it would happen. I think it could really be the answer to the problems that we're facing. But I still just thought of it like as an expensive science experiment. I didn't see it as something commercializable. And it wasn't until um, right at the end of 2015, the beginning of 2016, when Memphis Meats was founded by uh, Dr. Uma Valetti, that I thought, you know, this is the first time there was a company being founded to actually commercialize this type of a product. And that was really inspirational to me to see that it was no longer in the realm of academia. This was actually now going to be invested in by venture capitalists and, and agricultural companies to actually bring this to market. And that is what prompted me to write the book. Mm. Mm, yeah, so your approach here is, is quite interesting in terms of like the actual business side of things. You're more of a, you're not like an Impossible Foods or a Beyond you know, direct-to-consumer brand. You are a B2B brand. And you're also, you're not a hundred percent, like the, the end product of what you um, do is not a hundred percent plant-based, right? Your product mixes in with meat for companies. Is that correct? Maybe, maybe we can dive right into how, <laughs> how and why you went that direction and what exactly your product does. Sure. So you're right, Pat, that we're a B2B or business-to-business -business ingredients company. So we sell all entirely plant-based ingredients to food companies that they can utilize to make either plant-based meats or they can blend them into their animal meats so they can use fewer animals. So think about it like this. 
you know, right now, um, if you put gas in your car, you're not really thinking about it, but there's probably about 10 or 15% of that gas is made from ethanol. And the reason is because we want to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. We want to, uh, you know, basically, there's other reasons for it too, but essentially that's why. And so that is one example of how blending can help reduce some of the problem. It doesn't eliminate it, but it does reduce a lot of it. Now think about it like this. So, you know, um, have you ever had the Impossible Whopper from Burger King? Not from Burger King, but I've had the Impossible Whopper, yeah. Uh, Okay, all right. So, you know, Burger King sells the Impossible Whopper. According to uh, news articles that in in some of the better selling stores, it might be about 2% of the burger sales from uh, for that store. Well, imagine if in addition to offering the Impossible Whopper, which is fantastic, I've bought it, I think it's fantastic doing it, I think it's historic actually. But imagine if in addition, to offering that Whopper that might be cutting into the beef sales by 2%. They also just took the regular Whopper and made it 50% plant-based. So it wouldn't be you know, turning anybody vegetarian, but you can see how it would actually be far better for animals to have a 50% reduction in beef usage than a 2%. Now, that doesn't mean they're mutually exclusive. They're in fact, they're complementary strategies of one another. But it does mean that blending, I, I think, can actually do a lot to save animals and to help the planet and to improve public health because you're reducing saturated fat, reducing cholesterol, mm-hmm. reducing total calories, increasing fiber and more. So yes, we offer ingredients both to plant-based meat companies and to regular conventional meat companies for them to blend into their products, whether they be plant-based or whether they just want to have a product that uses fewer animals. And what is generally like the reception um, when you, when you pitch a meat company and maybe can you talk about if there's economic benefits on their end by using your product instead sure. of more animals? Sure. Well, I put it like this, you know, uh, there are some companies that I think have their head in the sand, but there's other companies that are quite forward thinking and think about what happened with film. You know, you were, you were wind the clock 20 years ago, virtually all the photos that we were taking were on these gelatin negatives or gelatin photo that were getting printed out on. I mean, I remember when one hour photo came out, I was so stoked. I was like, man, one hour, we're going to get our photos in only one hour. I couldn't believe it. You know, imagine now if it took one minute, imagine if it took one minute to get your photos, you'd be outraged. It'd be rioting in the streets. Um, and you know, what happened was there were companies like Kodak and Canon that at that time were vying for supremacy in the film market. Well, Kodak was concerned that digital was going to cannibalize its core business, and so they tried to suppress it. Whereas Canon embraced it, knowing that it would cannibalize its business, but they decided that it was worth it because they thought it was the wave of the future. And we all know what happened. Kodak went bankrupt, and Canon is now the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. And so the meat industry is not that dissimilar to that today. Uh, today, there are some companies that are pursuing a Kodak type strategy where they're afraid of cannibalization and so they want to try to suppress the alternative protein industry. Then there you have some cannons in that field that also say, hey, listen, we're happy to supply a meat-like experience for our customers, even if it doesn't mean raising and slaughtering animals. In fact, the former CEO of Tyson, while CEO, said, if we could make meat without the animal, why wouldn't we? And so mm-hmm. I think there are some companies Um, that are big meat producers today that are shifting their own self-perception away from being a meat company to being a protein company. You know, it's kind of like, Pat, you know, you think about like, you know, you flick a light switch, right? And you don't care 
whether it's renewable or fossil energy that is coming out there. You just want the experience of having an illuminated room. That's what you're looking for. Well, similarly, I think a lot of people, when they eat meat, they're eating meat because they like that experience. They don't necessarily want animals to be raised and slaughtered for it, um, but they would probably be happier if they weren't actually. But I believe that we can create meat-like experiences for customers that will be the same uh, as the meaty experiences that they're having today just without animals and with a far lighter footprint on the planet. And I think there's a lot of meat companies out there today who recognize that that's going to be a big part of the future and they want to profit in that type of a world rather than becoming the Kodak. Mm. Yeah. And you specifically, your, your product is made via fermentation. Is that correct? Yeah. The latest generation of our product, Pat, we call it Riza. That's R-H-I-Z-A. And so Riza is just Latin for root. Um, but what we're doing is making a fermentation product that if you think about it, well, let me back up. So, you know, right now, if you think about how long it takes to raise a cow before you slaughter her, uh, you know, typically it might be about 14 months or if she's grass fed, maybe two years. You think about a pig, they're slaughtered at about five months old, chickens at about 40 days old. Well, what we're doing is harnessing the power of microbial fermentation, where replication times are so rapid that we can actually harvest within less than one day of inoculating our fermenter. So what does that mean? That means that we can take common ingredients like potatoes, subject them to a microbial fermentation that within less than one day transforms them into meat-like products that are whole food. They're not fractionated or isolated or extruded. They're a whole food that is based on a mycelium, which is just a fancy way of saying the root structure of fungi. And that product not only looks like raw meat, but it has more protein than eggs, more iron than beef. It's got high fiber and it naturally contains vitamin B12 because it's not a plant food. It's a, this is a food of microbial fermentation. So unlike plant foods, it actually contains vitamin B12. And so this is a real superfood that is both animal free, very light footprint on the planet and tastes amazing. It is way better than the current ingredients that most plant-based meat is made out of today. You know, most plant-based meat today is made out of either soy, wheat, or pea, or some combination thereof. And what they do is, you know, just take what, let's say pea protein as an example. You know, you gotta grow a field of peas, you gotta harvest it, then you mill it into a flour. The, that pea flour is only about 20% protein. So then you take that pea flour and you subject it to a process called extrusion, which is high heat and high energy that transforms the molecular structure of that protein to make it more like an animal's protein. So the problem is that, you know, if you think about the evolutionary tree, you've got plants on one side and animals on the other. We all know peas don't have the same texture as an animal's flesh, right? So you got to do all of that stuff to try to bring the two closer to one another, to try to make the pea taste a little bit more like the plant, uh, more like the animal. Well, there's an entirely third kingdom, though, that's not plant and not animal. It's called fungi. And fungi are not in the middle between animals and plants. They are right on the edge of animals. They're much closer to animals than they are to plants. In fact, they are so much closer to animals than plants that, like animals, fungi breathe in oxygen and out CO2, or as we know, plants do the opposite, right? Like trees breathe in CO2 and sequester it and breathe out oxygen. So fungi automatically have a much meatier texture than plants do because they are so much closer to actual animals. This is why mushrooms have been used for centuries as a meat replacement in Chinese cuisine and others. So we are starting from a place where we're so much closer to the texture that we want that we don't have to do all of that processing, the fractionation, the isolation, the extrusion. All we do after the product comes out of our fermenter 
is we simply remove water. That's it. So again, we're going in less than one day from feeding in potatoes, running a fermentation, pulling out a product that looks and tastes like meat less than a day later, removing water, and now you've got an ingredient that you can make a succulent plant-based meat out of that is a whole food and that is the most nutritious product that you could think of to make a plant-based meat from. Yeah, that that is super cool because I have always... I picture, and maybe maybe you, at least here from a U.S. perspective, like I see the clean meat coming, right? You have the plant-based meat that kind of health-oriented people, you know, it's a it's a once every few weeks type deal, um, and there aren't great options for like a healthier, um, you know, meat replacement that that falls in that that spectrum, but. I see as, you know, health awareness grows, at least for a lot of parts of the U.S., that clean meat, to me, like, is, is not something I'm ever going to seek out and want to eat. Um, so I, I, I kind of see, like, okay, if, if health and awareness of, of the benefits of eating more plants in your diet continues to grow at the rate it's growing, at what point does clean meat and some of the really highly processed plant-based meats just not really become something people want all the time. Yeah, well, I hear you on that, Pat. And I, I believe that there are many people like yourself for whom these products are just not intended. You know, like clean meat, which just for those who aren't initiated, is real meat grown from animal cells. It's not a meat replacement or a meat alternative. That's real actual animal meat grown from animal cells rather than animal slaughter. That's not intended for vegans like you and me. That's intended for people who want meat, who want the so-called real thing in their mind. Totally. And for those people, you know, that's a good viable alternative that hopefully will be on, in, uh, on the market in the future. Then you've got other plant-based products like you know, Beyond and Impossible, which try to replicate the, the experience of eating meat, but doing it from plants. And I'm rooting for those companies hard. I hope they succeed. But I, you know, I agree with you. They're not necessarily health food. I think they're a lot healthier than animal-based meat, but they're not as good as eating a kale salad, that's for sure. Um, but what we at the Better Meat Co. are doing are trying to pioneer a new ingredient that you can create a meat-like experience from that actually is a healthy whole food. And so it's difficult to try to get soybeans or peas or wheat to look and taste like meat. But when you're starting out in the fungi kingdom, it's actually a much shorter bridge to cross. And through our unique and patented fermentation process, we are actually able to create that meat-like experience with something that is high in fiber, whole food, very nutritious, and very, very little processing. Again, simply water removal. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Do you see, what do you kind of see in the market as somebody that is very much entrenched in and so knowledgeable on it? Um, both with the, the plant-based movement, but also just the alternative meat market. What, what do you see kind of happening? I kind of alluded to the fact that I think clean meat for most health oriented people isn't going to really be on their menu. Obviously that's from my perspective, but what do you kind of see shaking mm -hmm. out over the next yeah. say, five to 10 years? Yeah. So, you know, first I got to say, you know, I am, I, you know, I am a vegan. My wife is a vegan cookbook author. I got a lot of vegan friends and uh, many of them will say, Hey, you know, I don't want to eat clean meat because uh, it's not healthy. At the same time, I see those same people, you know, posting their favorite vegan donuts 
cakes and pizzas and everything else on, <laughs> on Instagram. And, you know, I have a feeling that maybe health isn't the primary factor for their considerations. At the same time, again, I just want to stress, like, it doesn't really matter whether vegans eat clean meat or not. It's not really the purpose. You know, I mean, in fact, I would say it's totally irrelevant. What matters is whether people who are big meat eaters are going to eat it. And that still remains to be seen. I think they will, but we'll see. Um, for me, though, I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I'm rooting for all these strategies because I think the pressing, the, the, the problem is so pressing. You know, we are lighting the planet on fire almost literally, and we've got to do something. And animal agriculture is a driving force in biodiversity loss, deforestation, greenhouse gas emissions, and more, not to mention the suffering of the animals involved in this system, which is a highly motivating factor for me as well. Um, but we got to do something and we got to do it fast. And so in the same way that fossil fuels are such a big problem that you want lots of alternatives, right? You want wind, you want solar, you want geothermal and more. I really believe that the problem of factory farming is also so bad that you want lots of alternatives. You want plant-based meat, you want clean meat, you want fermentation products, you want hybrid products, and you want people just eating a whole foods plant-based diet. You know, mm. uh, I'd be thrilled if people, if people, instead of, you know, buying clean meat, if instead they're like, Hey, I really want a bean and brown rice burrito. I'd be thrilled. I would be jumping up and down for joy. I love eating bean and rice burritos. I love lentil soup. I love hummus. I wish more people would be happy to live on those foods like I do. Um, but, I, you know, I realize that there's just a lot of people who want that meat experience. And so we got to provide it for them without animals. And that's what so many in this space are trying to do. Now, to answer your question directly, Pat, about what I predict, first of all, I want to say my predictions, my, my power predictions have been quite bad. I think of myself as notoriously bad at predicting the future. In fact, I remember <laughs> when, uh, when Donald Trump announced that he was going to run for president, I said to my friend that I believed I had a better chance of winning than he did. Um, and so I obviously turned out to be quite wrong on that. Um, and there's many other things that I've been wrong about. So what I though do think will happen and take it for what it's worth, I really believe that um, the, in the future, we're gonna have a far more diverse portfolio of proteins that are going to be available to us. In the past, we have generally thought of protein as being synonymous with a hunk of flesh from a once living animal's body. In the future, people are going to think of protein in a far more diverse way. They're going to think about plant proteins. They're going to think about uh, proteins coming from cell culture. They're going to think about proteins coming from microbial fermentation, maybe from algae as well. Um, I, I just think there's going to be a much more diverse set of proteins available to us, and it'll be a far more interesting culinary experiences. Uh, I, you know, in fact, if you think about like, well, think about like um, the time after humans had domesticated cows, but before cheese was invented. So nobody figured out how to make milk curdle into cheese. Nobody at that point had ever fantasized about brie or gouda or Swiss or cheddar or any other type of cheese that so many people eat on a daily basis now. Nobody thought about it because it was totally novel. And I really believe that these type of uh, technologies, including fermentation, are going to similarly, similarly create novel food experiences that are going to be mind-blowing for people and that will become a regular part of our diet. So foods that many of us may not have even dreamt of or fantasized in the about, about in the same way nobody had fantasized about Gouda or Brie, I really think that people are going to enjoy these novel experiences and we're going to have a far more interesting food future than the one that is right now tied to basically protein from animal slaughter. Mm, yeah, very cool. You touched on it a little bit, for, but for the people that are listening that aren't like super familiar uh, with kind of the environmental benefits, can you talk a little bit more about how 
maybe if a meat company uses 50% of, you know, your product in their products, um, you know, kind of what the impact is there? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, you know, first and foremost, just look at the macro picture. The planet is not getting any bigger. Humanity's footprint on the planet is getting a lot bigger, but the planet isn't getting any bigger. And one of the principal ways that we leave that footprint is through our food print, primarily in the amount of animals who we're eating. And so, you know, it's just no longer any secret that raising animals for food compared to eating plants just takes a lot more land, a lot more water, a lot more greenhouse gas emissions, way more deforestation, more antibiotic usage, and so on. It's just extremely unsustainable. We're not going to be farming the moon. We're not going to be farming Mars. We have one celestial body to farm, and it is Earth. Yet there's 7.8 billion of us today. And pretty soon, within 30 years, barring any catastrophe, there's going to be nearly 10 billion of us. We're going to add 2 billion more people to the planet. And the people who are here are going to want more meat as well. Right now, sadly, meat consumption is going up, not down, on a per-person basis, not just by population, but on a per-person basis, meat consumption in the U.S. and in nearly all countries, China, India, Brazil, all the places is going to matter the most in the future, meat consumption is going up on a per-person basis, and population is going up, and that is a dead-end road for humanity and for much of the rest of the planet. So the question is, how can we actually make a dent in this and reduce meat demand? Well, one way is to try to persuade people to become vegetarian or vegan. That's great. It's what I do. Um, but it hasn't worked. You know, mm. the fact is that per capita rates of vegetarianism have really not changed in decades. Um, there's a lot more awareness now, but, you know, some people may live in a vegan bubble, but the reality is that actual per capita rates of meat consumption have gone up, not down. And so, you know, we just, you know, there's a big explosion of interest in plant-based. That's awesome. It's fantastic. More power. Um, but, it hasn't worked uh, so far. Meat demand has gone in the wrong direction, up, not down. So blending offers a strategy to help the food industry reduce its reliance on animals and use these lower footprint products like plant products or uh, products of fermentation that have a much smaller footprint on the planet. And by blending them in in the same way that you can reduce the amount of fossil fuels you're using by putting ethanol in your gas tank, you can do the same here by putting plants in your meat. And so many vegans are thrilled to see, rightly so, to see uh, plant-based protein entering the meat aisle of the supermarket. It's great to see. We love it. However, plant-based protein should not just be entering the meat aisle of the supermarket. It should be entering the meat itself. And that is one of the ways I think that we're going to help address this situation. Mm, yeah, well said. And on the, do you currently right now, do you only um, do replacements for beef or do you do, re what, re what foods do you do replacements for? Well, we do beef, we do chicken, we do fish, we do crab, we do turkey. Uh, you know, there's just a multitude of major categories of animal species who we have pioneered methods of replacing them. So uh, we supply plant-based seafood companies and we supply animal-based seafood companies with offering them a way to make really awesome plant-based seafood and a way to use fewer crabs, as an example, if they're an animal-based company. Yeah, how long, out of curiosity, how long was, did that process take you? Or, or typically, wow. when, you, when you say, I want to do a crab replacement, like how long does that generally take to like dial in? It takes some time and it takes some R&D innovation, uh, but we have some really fantastic product developers here at the Better Meat Co. who are really expert at this particular science of figuring out ways to make products that work either as a seamless blending agent into meat 
or as a fully plant-based meat that stand uh, stand up on their own as well. So, you know, in reality, I'd say years. I mean, we've existed now for a little over three years as a company, and we've continually innovated. We are currently on our fourth generation of product line in less than four years. So for us, it's not like we create a product and then that's it. We create products and then we continually innovate because we want to make sure that Anyone who tries to copy or replicate what we're doing is chasing our ghosts rather than chasing our current iterations of products. So that's how we are trying to stay ahead of the game. So I would say each thing is iterative upon the last. So if you take that, I mean, it's taken three years to come up with those products, honestly. Mm. Yeah. Is there any one particular replacement you're um, super pumped about that you're making right now that yeah. you can share with us or... Yeah, I actually think that our Ryza product, the fermentation product, is perfect for using as a crab uh, as a crab replacement. It works so well. And I feel so bad for these crabs. I still can't believe it's legal to boil animals alive. I mean, it's like it's it's so unbelievable to me that boiling animals alive is not only legal but totally commonplace and something that people joke about all the time. I mean, that future generations are going to look back in horror as the fact that not only do we do this, but it was done out in the open as a matter of, of jovial humor, boiling animals alive. So, you know, I want to like go down the hole of just depressing people with all the horrible things we do to animals, but right. among the worst things we do has got to be boiling them alive. And so I really want to do something for those animals like crabs and lobsters who um, very few people even give any thought to, let alone, or do you see campaigns being waged for them by the animal welfare charities? So, I am uh, particularly interested in that, and I think that our product lends itself particularly well to that application. And is there any, is there the same amount of interest with seafood as there is with, um, you know, other meat companies? And is there, has there been any more interest post things like Seaspiracy and kind of the, the, the more knowledge that is coming on the seafood front? Yes. So Seaspiracy did a lot to instigate that type of um, interest and, and demand, uh, no doubt. So my hat's off to the makers of that for the good work that they did. Um, and I also think that, you know, there's just a lot of people who think, well, you know, the burger space has a lot of product in it now, right? You've got Beyond, you've got Impossible, and you've got a host of other companies making plant-based burgers. And then the question is, you know, where can people who were getting into the space now go? Yeah, I think they actually could do burgers still. There's a lot of room in the space, from my opinion. It's not saturated. However, you know, it's a much more wide open field than if you're going to do something like fish or crabs or lobsters because there's no dominant player in that space yet. You know, there's no beyond, there's no impossible of, of seafood yet. And so I actually think that, that um, it's one of the more promising avenues for people who want to get into the business of alternative protein to explore. Yeah, and yeah. Do you oh, have... oh, go ahead. Also, I just want to say, like, you know, burgers are, um, you know, ground meat is just kind of cheap. It's not as cheap as chicken, but it's still pretty cheap. And you start talking about the prices that for crabs, like you can start competing on cost immediately. You know what I mean? Like beyond mm. and impossible are still not even close to the cost of commodity beef. But if you want to get into the plant-based crab game, just as an example, the price differential is already in your favor. Mm. Yeah, for the uh, for the younger people and maybe the budding entrepreneurs, do you have any advice if they're interested in going into the space? And maybe maybe they're on a path like you were. They were kind of looking for how they're going to um, you know I impact the world 
and yeah. and they want to get into this space. Do you have any advice? I do have advice. So first and foremost, just get out into the field and do it. Too many people become paralyzed. And this could be whether they want about starting a business or maybe like in, in your case, Pat, not saying that you suffered from this, but some people might think, how could I ever run an Ironman? I could never do that. You know, like I can't even run a 5K. Now I'm going to run an Ironman, you know, or run, swim and bike an Ironman, I guess I should say. Um, and these are psychological barriers that we place on ourselves. Like our limits are typically self-imposed. And if you look at, you know, if you read my book, Clean Meat, you actually see that the people who started the big companies, the big names in this space, Eat Just and Perfect Day and so on, they started these companies with no experience doing business or startups at all. And now they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and are, are like, you know, essentially titans of this particular uh, industry. So I just think that many people just let themselves get paralyzed with fear and you should just go and do it. You should start. And I would encourage you to take advantage of the resources offered by, for example, the Good Food Institute, which has lots of great resources on how to start companies. They even have a database of people who are looking to start companies so you could find a co-founder to start with you. Um, they also have a white space showing what they think are the, a document showing what they think are the white spaces in the area to get more involved in. Um, so there's never been a better time to start a company in this space, especially because right now, it's a white hot space. In fact, there are more investors than there are startups to invest in at this time. Mm. That's why you see these like massive valuations for these companies right now, because there's just a lot of investor interest in the space and there aren't enough early stage startups to, to uh, get all that. So uh, I think it's like the best time you could possibly have to start your own company right now. And if you want some advice on it, I'd welcome hearing from you. Go to bettermeet.co. Again, that's bettermeet.co. And you can email us through the form and um, you know, ask to have it sent to me. And I'll give you advice on what, you know, what you're doing. I'd love to hear about it. Maybe, maybe we could work together in some way. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I messaged you the other day about how I, I heard uh, Bruce of the Good Food Institute on Rich Roll talking all about you guys. And uh, that was super cool. I'm sure when you get sh shout outs at that level, that's got to be cool. Uh, I'm a huge fan of both Bruce Friedrichs and Rich Roll, um, and uh, they're both awesome people doing really good stuff in the world. Um, I, it was a real highlight for me back in 2018. I did an episode with Rich on his podcast, and I, I absolutely uh, had a blast doing it, especially because he was so influential in my life. You know, Rich inspired me uh, through reading his book, Finding Ultra, to run a marathon. You know, I had never run, you know, more than a 10K in my life. And uh, reading that book, I just thought, I'm going to go run a marathon. Uh, and I did. Um, and uh, that type of um, inspiration that uh, people like Rich have given to me have led me to, you know, pursue not a career in running, but like a amateur career in doing a lot of running. And uh, uh, during the pandemic, I have set a number of PRs for myself on my half marathon time, my 5k time, my one mile time, my 100 meter time, my 400 meter time all during the pandemic. I've, I've just taken this up to try to get a bunch of PRs. And so uh, I credit uh, much of that to Rich Roll, actually. Mm, yeah, a lot. I feel like he's been so influential in, in so many uh, journeys, myself included. So on that mm. front, um, talk to us a little bit about kind of some of those other things you do, uh, running included, that as an entrepreneur and having all the pressures of running a company and people's livelihoods and um, all the pressures yeah. that come with that, talk to us about how you... Uh, with running and maybe some other habits that keep you well during all that? 
Yeah. Well, first, you know, the thing that kept me most well was my wife, Tony. Um, so I give her you know, a, a shout out. You know, Tony's been because... on here. Oh, really? That's great. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I live in her shadow. I live in her shadow, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, I'll leave the let's... link for people listening to the episode, but it was, it was probably uh, six to eight months ago, but yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah. So she's a, a vegan cookbook author and, uh, and, uh, you know, whenever I'm having a uh, you know, tough time, uh, she's definitely my my uh, source of support. So, uh, her and our dog and our dog Eddie, who is a great source of happiness for both of us as well. So that's one thing. But uh, you know, look, you know, look, it's very hard to start a company. Most of them fail. In fact, ninety percent of startups fail. Uh, so there's huge mortality, especially infant mortality rates for these type of companies. And you know, there's a saying that when you start your own company, you're going to sleep like a baby because you're going to wake up every two hours and cry. And I have felt that way at times, you know, like all the pressures that you just mentioned, Pat, I really think those are true. You know, you got people's livelihoods, you've got uh, careers at stake, a lot of money, including from people who are in your personal social circle, have invested mm-hmm. in. And, you know, you don't, you know, these are not people who I'm never going to see again. These are my close social circle who have invested in my company. I want to make sure they you know, don't lose all their money and the pressure of trying to actually do good in the world. You know, like the purpose of our company is to actually solve this crisis of raising billions of animals for food. And we need to make a dent in that number. So that is another pressure altogether for that. Um, And so for me, um, I do a lot of things, including running. um, But I also, uh, you know, I think about there's a a line um, that uh, is from the great philosopher, Rocky Balboa, who uh, said in Rocky Five, you know, he said, you know, in life, it's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That is how winning is done. And that's what I think about with regard to this company and running companies in general, that you're going to get hit all the time. You're going to fall down, whether you fall down by your own volition or whether somebody pushes you down, you're going to get hit and you're going to fall down. And the question isn't whether or not you fall. The question is whether you get back up and keep moving forward. And that is what we're trying to do here at the Better Miko is keep moving forward. And that is what I think about with running as well. As long as I keep moving forward, that's my goal. And so I wake up really early to go running. Um, uh, you know, I wake up before 6am every day to go running and I, I'll vary it up. Sometimes I do a uh, longer distance. Sometimes I'll do track workouts. Um, you know, I, I just set my PR for my, uh, one mile. So I did, uh, a, my, my first ever, I'm 42 years old. I just did my first ever sub six minute mile. So I'm very wow, proud. Of congrats. I'm very, <laughs> thank you. I was very proud of that. Now I'm not going to, I'm now going to try to get down to maybe 5:45, maybe 5:30. I don't know. We'll see. I almost died doing it. I truly you know, <laughs> thought like when I, when I crossed, I was running a, a friend of mine who's like my, my volunteer trainer. His name is Jed Solis. He's an elite vegan athlete. This dude is like sponsored by a shoe company. He's like really hardcore, very, very fast ultra marathoner. And so he's been kind of training me and helping me. And he paced me for that sub six minute mile. And at the end of it, I collapsed. I, you know, as soon as I passed the one mile mark, I collapsed. I think it was like at five fifty eight, And he was standing over me and I was looking up at him and I just remember thinking, I think I might have a heart attack right now. <laughs> I think, I think this is like, a, this is how it ends. So you're like, Oh, what happened to Paul? Oh, he ran a sub six minute <laughs> mile and he died. Um, but yes. Yeah, so that's, you know, uh, that was a, a nice accomplishment, but I, I, I can never rest on my laurels. So I, I got more to do for sure. And I'm certainly nowhere in your league to talk about doing Ironman. That's like way beyond what I'm doing. Well, well, I, I love, I personally love the, the sports analogies. And I think like, something like a marathon or, or like an Ironman is very, at least with my experience with, with being an entrepreneur, it's like, it's just constant, constant problems and challenges. And 
as yeah. you said, <laughs> as you said, it's less about like not not the falling down aspect aspect, but the the idea of just continuing to go. You know, you maybe you crashed your bike and you're a few months out from from your race, and you gotta you gotta find a way to get to that start line regardless. And yeah. I just think it's just a great analogy for for business and any goal. And and I also like that it's just such a long-term goal. Like if you're going to, if you're the average person and you want to set out to do, you know, something like that or, or an ultra marathon or whatever, it's like, you know, you're training for years and I just like that like long-term goal. And, and then the, and then the, the, the little obstacle obstacles become a little more bearable because your goal is, is just so far out and you have that big picture mindset with it. Yeah, it's definitely feels to me more like the company definitely feels more like a marathon than a sprint. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and in fact, I would suggest it might even be um, not even a marathon, but like a perpetual relay race, uh, you know, because more and more people <laughs> come on the team and right. they are, you know, they're, they're taking that baton and they're running as well. And so uh, that's how I feel about like a team relay race, I guess. And my goal is just constant forward movement. That's it. You know, you may get injured. You may have other problems. They're just constant forward movement. It's going to take a long time. You know, we didn't get into the mess that we're in overnight and we're not going to get out of it overnight, but we're in a mess. We need to stop exploiting animals so much. And we've got to figure out technologies that will enable us to do that. Uh, because I just don't think there's another way. Honestly, I wish there were, I'd be thrilled if there were some mm. other way, but I, I, I can't see what it is. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know we got to wrap up here in a minute, um, but where can uh, people follow you? Where can they follow Better Meat Co.? And is there any way, like if somebody buys a, a meat product, do you guys like get credit on the back of the package and things like that? <laughs> so, um, you know, to the extent that somebody is eating meat and they were hoping to get a blended product, the Purdue Chicken Plus product contains Better Meat Co. ingredients. So it's half chicken, half plant-based, and they're like nuggets for kids. And so it's actually, according to one article recently, grown to be about 20% of Purdue's frozen chicken nugget sales. So anyway, that, wow. like 20% of this massive chicken company's frozen nugget sales are now half plant-based. Not that bad. Um, so, you know, that's an example, but to answer your question directly, Pat, if people want to get in touch, just go to bettermeat.co again, that's bettermeat.co. And, uh, if you're interested in the book, clean meat, I'd love to hear what you think about it. That website is cleanmeat.com. Again, that's cleanmeat.com. And you can get in touch with me through either one of those websites, but I'd welcome hearing from you because I love talking to people who are trying to do good in the world, especially good for animals. So get in touch. Would love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, well, Paul, shout out to you, man. I mean, you are actually really making an impact and um, it's just awesome to see. And, um, you know, I've seen your talks and I've, I've heard you on podcasts and I've, like I said, I've followed you and um, you have uh, an ability to communicate as well in a way that is um, approachable to people in, in, in uh, warm and friendly and, um, it, it, it's a beautiful thing, uh, what you're doing, and uh, I'm rooting for you 100%. Thanks so much, Pat. It's very kind of you, man. I'm rooting for you as well, and I will be literally rooting for you when you come out to Sacramento <laughs> in this Ironman because you're going to see Tony and Eddie, our dog, and me. We're going to be all out there on the on the trail <laughs> with right. a big, big Pat sign, all right? So a big, let me know a big what plant the powered is. sign for me. Good. I, I, I will be there. Maybe, maybe I'll like, if I can jump in the course, maybe I'll run a little bit with you. We'll see. What's your, yeah, what's going to be your, awesome. your, your goal pace? What's your goal pace here for the marathon portion? 
You know, this one, this one is supposedly a flat, fast course, which is why I kind of okay. chose it for the first one. Um, yeah. But on the tail end, you know, if I could, if I could break a four-hour marathon, um, that's nice. kind of like the, okay. the threshold for like a decent, yeah. All right. decent time. All right. well, can, uh, that's hard, though, after uh, uh, a 112-mile uh, uh, bike uh, and a two-mile swim. But <laughs> Well, it, it'll be hard for you, but not for me. So a, a good friend of mine named Dan Phillips – uh, ran when I did uh, the Marine Corps Marathon in 2013. He ran the final, like, I think, eight miles with me. Yeah. And it was so helpful for me. It was so helpful. Mm. Uh, so I always want to pay it forward. I don't know if I'll do eight miles with you, but I might do a few. So keep me, cool. in, keep me in, in mind I will. if you need somebody to help, all right? I will. Thank you, Paul. Greatly appreciate <laughs> right, it. I'm giving you a fist bump from Sacramento. Thanks, Pat. All right, man. Thank you very much.